Good morning. It's great to see you all. I hope you feel the same way about me. In John chapter 18, the Jewish leaders have brought Jesus before Pilate, and they want him executed. And Jesus and Pilate have a little bit of a conversation. And Pilate says, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? That's what they're saying, you're saying. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's from another world. Pilate says, you are the king then. Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate retorted, it says, what is truth? What is truth? It's a very important question. What is truth? J.P. Moreland, he's an American philosopher and theologian. Uh, he, he defines truth in this way, and I, I think it's a, helpful, it's a helpful definition. He says, truth is a matching between thought and reality. Truth is a matching between thought and reality. There is a correspondence between what we're thinking and how things actually are. So I want to get just a little bit philosophical with you for a moment. So if that's not your thing, just hold on. It's not too, we're not going too deep here, but um, I think it will be helpful if we think through this a bit. Let me just ask you the question. The concept of redness, okay? We know red the color. Let's think of redness as a concept. Could redness exist in this room if there were only one thing in the room? If there were only one thing in the room, could the concept of redness exist? Yes, of course. You could have an apple in the middle of the room, a nice shiny red apple, and redness as a concept would exist. Now, let me ask you another question. Could the concept of larger than exist in the room if there were only one object in the room? So we have a concept of larger than. We all know what that is. Could it exist if there were only one object in the room? The answer is no. If there's only one object, how could you have another reference point to compare it to? You would need two objects. You could, for example, have this stand, and you could have my body. And unfortunately, my body is much larger than this music stand. So where is the concept of larger than? Is it the music stand? Is it my body? The concept of larger than exists between. It's a relationship that exists between this. As we compare them, we can see the concept of larger than. You need two things to compare them to. Are you tracking with me? Larger than is a relationship that exists between two things. Truth, as J.P. Moreland leads us to think through, has, is a similar thing. You need two different things for truth to exist. He says you would need a thought or a belief, and you need reality. You need a belief about something, and then you need reality. Truth is the thing that corresponds between those two things when they line up. 
For example, I could believe that it's raining outside right now. That's my belief. I'm thinking that. That's my thought. I believe that to be true. I look out the window, and if it's raining, there is a correspondence between what I believe and what is taking place in reality. The relationship between those two things is what we call truth. Um, let me illustrate this in a, in a different way. I was, uh, recently I ordered a, a watch from the internet. I was really excited about this watch. You can only order it online and it had to be shipped. And I was watching the tracking very closely, excited for it to arrive. And I got a notification that it had arrived. Now, when I, when I got home, I, I kind of changed my day a little bit so I get home earlier. <laughs> I mean, never mind. <laughs> um, I was very excited. Now, over Christmas, I had the experience of, uh, I ordered a book for my mom for Christmas off Amazon, and, the, and I got a notification saying that it had arrived, and it did not arrive. So I, was, I, had, a, I had a hard time, you know, my heart was kind of broken a little bit by this experience as far as trusting the tracking on packages. Um, and so I came home and I had this thought, but I wasn't quite fully believing it, but I, I was still over the line. And I came home and I, when I opened the door, I looked open and I saw the package on the dryer. And I had the experience, the, I experienced the correspondence of what I thought to be true and the reality of what just happened, that it was there. This is a really important concept to understand because this is really the whole premise of what this series is all about, is that we're thinking about what do we believe and how is that influencing how we're thinking, how we're behaving, how we're feeling, and is that corresponding with how things actually are? Is that how things are in reality? Now, before we move on, I, I, think it's, I think it's been, this is a concept that I've just kind of been thinking about recently that I think is, is helpful to understand about belief. Because we can ask the question, well, what is belief then? What is belief? And again, to use the words of J.P. Moreland here, he says, a belief is something you take to be true somewhere between 51 and 100%. A belief is something you take to be true somewhere between 51 and 100% certainty. So if you're 55, 45 on something, you believe that thing, but pretty weakly, you could say. You know, you could ask me, do I believe if the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to make it to the playoffs next year? I could say, yeah, I believe that. You know, if you were to ask me, you know, how strongly do you believe that? I would say probably like 52, 48, maybe, you know, like I think they are. But if you re I'm not really have a lot of confidence. Again, heart has been broken many times. So, and I think sometimes we think of belief only in terms of binary, in binary terms, if you know what I mean. Either you do or you don't. It's either all or nothing. And I think this can be a really unhelpful way to think about belief. Of course, there are times where there is a point where we cross the line where we do believe something, where we move past 50%. But it's also very helpful to think of belief as something that we can grow in. We can grow in our beliefs. 
Because sometimes I think if it can be crushing if we just think it's either on or off. And as we go through the series, the point of the series is that for, you know, in this room, we're, all, we're at a different part of the zero to 100 for many of these issues, depending on who you are and what your struggle is. You know, if you're a Christian, you're over the line on some of these issues. If you're not quite there yet, um, maybe you're, you're getting closer. Maybe you're still kind of pretty skeptical, and that's okay. We're glad you're here. But all of us are, can grow in our faith. We can grow in our beliefs of, of something. I don't think any of us are going to be able to be at 100% about everything about what God says about himself in this lifetime. None of us will be at 100% in everything. We will only until we see him face to face will we get that full experience of fully believing and seeing. But while we're, while we're here in this earth with sinful hearts and a sinful world, we are still going to have room to grow in what we believe about God. And so Romans one twenty five, as we've been saying over again in this series, is that it says we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's how the Bible summarizes what our problem is as humanity. We have exchanged truth for a lie. We were living, we were meant to live in truth and how things actually are, and yet we have exchanged that in our hearts for something that's not actually how the world is. And that's taken place in a variety of different ways. There's, it's many facets to this lie. It's a nuanced lie, and that's why we're taking you know, two months or so to look at different aspects, because each facet influences our behavior and our thoughts and our emotions and our actions in slightly different ways. And so... You know, it might seem a little bit redundant, some of these things we're going over, but a lot of them are just so nuanced that it can affect our heart in a variety of different ways. And so the exchange we're looking at this morning is this. It's the idea of glory, that we have traded the motivation and purpose of our lives. This is what we did in the fall. This is the, the lie that's still present in our hearts. That we have traded the motivation and purpose of our lives from being about God and his glory to being about ourselves and our own fame. That the Bible teaches clearly that you were created to give God glory. That's the purpose of your life. You were created for the glory of God. And that life works best when you are striving after that in your life. But what we've done in the fall, what we've done in our rebellion, what we do in our sin is that we say, no, sorry, God, that's not what I want my life to be about. I want life to be about my own fame, about myself. And so that's the lie. And what, we, what I want to show you is that God is passionate and determined and relentless and jealous about making his glory known. And the whole reason he created you and the whole reason he created everyone who has ever existed in history is that we would join him in the glorifying of, of who he is. So just to illustrate this for you, I, um, I want to just take you through a few passages in scripture. And trust me, I could take you through a lot more. But just to try to drive the point home, I want to show you very clearly in scripture that God is motivated he does things for his glory, for his name's sake. In Ezekiel 20, 14, we learn that God spared Israel in the wilderness 
for the glory of his name. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Israel spent a long time in the wilderness after he delivered them from Egypt. And he and they got stuck there because they didn't believe. And so he eventually delivers them from the wilderness. And it says, but for the sake of my name, I did what I, I would to keep it from being profane in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. Israel didn't believe in Egypt. He brings them out into the wilderness. They still don't believe, but he says, for the sake of my name, I will deliver them so that my name isn't profaned. Israel leaves the wilderness. They enter Canaan. There's enemies there. They, have, they go to battle against a lot of nations, and God gives them victory over the land of, over the, um, land of Canaan. And it says, the reason that God gave them victory in Canaan, in 2 Samuel 7.23, says, And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself. Why did he give them victory in Canaan? To make a name for himself. It says in Isaiah 48, 9 to 11, that God holds back his wrath against us for his name's sake. He says, for my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as to not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, for my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. A couple more. Just, I really want to drive this home because this is such an important point in Scripture. Psalm, oh, sorry, the reason that God forgives us is for his name's sake. Isaiah 43. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And remembers your sin no more. For my own sake. Why did God lay down his life for you? Why did God forgive you? Yes, because he loves you. But the bigger reason is, is for his own glory did he do that. His love for you is kind of a subset of his glory. He did it because he's jealous for his name. He doesn't want his name to be famed. Psalm 23, this is a famous passage. Um, probably most people know this passage. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Why does he do that? For his name's sake. Lastly, Isaiah 43. God created you for his glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughter from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were created for the glory of God. That's reality. That's how things actually are. And so let me just ask you the question, how does that idea sit with you? How does the idea that your life is not ultimately about you and making a great name for yourself, your life is ultimately about making a great name for God? How does that sit with you? Because there is a part of your heart that is in rebellion against God that hates that idea. It's present in my heart. It's present in your heart. And let me tell you, there are 
that idea is especially unpopular in our culture today. I want to give you three examples of people that wrestled with this and have talked openly about it, about this idea. The first person is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist for the first part of his life. Again, he's a brilliant man. He was an Oxford uh, professor. And he didn't become a Christian until he was 29. And before he became a Christian, he said that he read the Psalms and he picked up on the language like praise the Lord, love the Lord, worship the Lord. And he says, I understood that scriptures were inspired by God and God is saying that he wants, he demands this from us. And he says, I felt like, he said, he said I felt like God was saying, praise me, love me, worship me. And sounded like, his words, not mine, an old woman who wanted compliments. He said, God sounded like an old woman who wanted compliments. He thought, why would I want a God who says, I need your praise? He said, that idea just, that, I, don't, I don't like the idea of God like that. And it was actually a barrier for him to come to faith in Christ. Another person, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah grew up in a Christian environment and I would say has since moved on to a, a more broad spiritual uh, environment. And there, she was interviewed once and she said, I, I believe the, I, I, was, I bought into Christianity until one day when I was around 27 or 28 and I was, I was in a church service and I heard the, the, the pastor say, the Lord your God is a jealous God. The Lord your God is a jealous God. She said, a jealous God is jealous of me? Something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is a God of love and that God is in all things. She didn't like that God wants all of our affections, that he is jealous. And so she kind of moved away from Christianity. That particular issue when she was interviewed, she highlighted as a, as a struggle of hers. The last person, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt similarly grew up in a conservative Christian home. He was interviewed in, a, in Parade magazine, and he said this, religion works. I know that there's some comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and to have something bigger than you, and that it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it, and it worked for me in whatever my little high school crisis was, but it didn't last. And when asked why, he responded, I didn't understand the idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say, I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you won't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense. For these people, and I would say for you and for me, the idea that God wants us to praise him and glorify him didn't sit well. And in some senses, it made them want to move away from God. And with that decision, they establish a belief about reality, about how things actually are. And that influences and motivates and 
gives a whole new purpose to why we live. And the scriptures say that's not how things are. And when you start living out of sync of how things actually are, it's not going to go well. And so, again, the truth is that all of us are not going to be 100% on this. All of us are going to be on a scale from 0 to 99, and depending on who you are and what your particular struggles are, this issue is going to show up somewhere in your life. You know, for, for some of us in the room, it might be a matter of the mind right now that you aren't convinced of this intellectually. Uh, you know, it may come out in your skepticism. It may come out in your just, I'm not ready to acknowledge this as true. For others, it, it may be a matter of actions, you know, you may believe it with your head, it may be true in your heart, but your hands are not following. And so your lack of action, or maybe your actions, are saying that this idea is not actually infiltrated all the way down into all of who you are yet. And for others, and I think this is probably where most of us experience this, it's a matter of the emotion. You know, we may believe that our life is about the glory of God. We might, you know, especially if you've grown up in the church for a while, maybe that's something you don't struggle with on an intellectual level. But our emotions reveal our lack of belief in our hearts. It gets revealed in our bitterness. It gets revealed in our anger. It gets revealed in our resentment, in our envy, in our fear in our pride. And if I'm being honest, I would say, for me personally, this is where I experience my lack of belief on this particular issue. For me, intellectually, I've, I've wrestled through this and I don't have a hard time with this idea. Even in my actions, I don't mind doing things that are unnoticed and that don't get me a lot of recognition. But what I find and what I've found over and over again is that my emotions reveal that I haven't quite got there yet in believing this to be true because when I don't get recognition, when I don't get the glory that I think I deserve, I've experienced bitterness in my life. I've experienced resentment. And that emotion influences my behavior then. And I start acting towards people in a certain way because even though they don't deserve it, but there's something in me that's upset that I'm not getting the recognition that I deserve and that it influences how I behave. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. Maybe you've experienced it, but not quite been able to realize what's going on in your own heart. And for parents, I think you probably get practice with this a lot with your kids, that you pour love and care into, and you give all to, and I'm guessing you probably don't get the recognition that you probably deserve. You know, you get to practice this a lot. And maybe it's a bit easier with your kids because they're your kids. But what happens when it's not your kids? What happens when the task is not within your family and serving those that you love? So what changes when we believe this? What changes when this exchange fully takes place in our heart? What will happen when we're at 
four things, and there's probably more, but here's four. Living for God's glory gives us great purpose. You know, often we, we get purpose, we get meaning from how much value it adds to something or how much recognition we get. But when we have this mindset of it's all that I do is for the glory of God, you know, Colossians 3, 17 says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I love this one. Whatever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. It's in the, in the normality of just eating and drinking, we can do for the glory of God. The meanest, the, the smallest, most menial tasks can be an, an opportunity to bring glory to our Father. It doesn't matter if I'm getting recognition. It doesn't matter if this has such great purpose and contribution on, on a worldly scale. I can do anything because my motivation is to bring glory to God. It brings purpose not only to many more things, but it brings a much more profound purpose to everything that we do. Number two, living for God's glory gives us great hope. Living for God's glory means that suffering has a purpose. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, which don't often feel light or momentary, but he says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what? an eternal weight of glory. They're achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Living for the glory of God and seeing this as the purpose for your life brings tremendous hope to suffering in our lives. It's achieving something. Number three, living for God's glory gives us freedom. When we're freed up to let this be our motivation completely, we are no longer a slave to our emotions. If you are feeling bitterness or resentment or anger because you're not getting what you think you deserve, that will control your life. It, you will become a slave to that. But when we fix our eyes to something greater and bigger that is not dependent on human approval, you will experience tremendous freedom to live un, un, uh, <clears throat> unaffected by the approval of other people, which is huge just huge. Lastly, living for God's glory gives us joy. It gives us joy. When we live for God's glory, our joy will grow deeper as we praise him for it. It's the response. It's the result. It's the fruit. I mentioned C.S. Lewis before, how this was a barrier for him. And C.S. Lewis eventually became a Christian, and he reflected on what he was thinking prior to becoming a Christian in a different way. 
And I'm going to read, it's a long quote, so bear with me. There is a summary, there's a main point here that I'll put on the screen. That is the main point, but hear him all the way through. He says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment and approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously flows in praise unless shyness or fear or boring others is brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite author, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wine, dishes, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical people, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, <laughs> rare beetles, even something politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and most capacious minds praise most, while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praise least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they also spontaneously urge others to join them. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us what we regard as supremely valuable and what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing. He says, I think we delight to praise, and this is the main thing I want you to see, the main connection of thought. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you see that connection? Have you experienced that in your own life? We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it actually completes the enjoyment of that thing. And so God did not create you for his glory because he's this old woman looking for compliments, desperate for attention. That's not why he did it. He did it because he knew that when we focus our lives on bringing glory to him, when we focus our lives on bringing glory and praise to the the one person and being in this universe that's most glorious and most praiseworthy, that is the pathway to our deepest joy. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, we weren't made to be big. We were made to see big. We're meant to be little, infinitely joyful worshipers. And if you look at Jesus, if you look at how he lived, how he spoke in the Gospels, you will see that this is exactly how Jesus lived. In John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching at a festival and the people are amazed at what he's saying. And so they ask, how did this man get so much learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. 
It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak of my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a person of truth. There is nothing false about them. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus endured the cross. He laid down his life for you. For the joy set before him. He went through excruciating pain for the joy set before him. When we go to John chapter 17, right before Jesus is arrested, he has a prayer to his father. And the heart of his prayer is seeking the glory of his father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might have eternal life to those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I've had with you since the world began. Glory is why you were created. That is reality. Glory is what God wants to see and enjoy. Glory is what led Jesus to the cross. Glory is why Jesus is returning one day in full. Glory is what Jesus is offering you when we come to him in faith. And everyone that seeks the glory of God, Jesus says, is a person of truth. Let's pray. God, I just acknowledge that your, your ways are above our ways. God, I know I see in my own heart a heart that wants glory for myself, and I, I believe foolishly that I think that's what's going to make me happy. That's what's going to give me the satisfaction that I am longing for. And God, I just come to you, and God, we come to you um, acknowledging our, our need for you, acknowledging that you are the one most glorious. You are the one worthy of our praise. And so this morning, would you help us to see that in our lives, where we're resisting you, where sin is still rebelling against you, God, would you expose that in us? Would you make that ugly to us? God, would you make us a church that enjoys such hope and freedom and joy and purpose in all that we do, that, that your glory would be tangible here, that we would see it in, in the smallest of ways and in the biggest of ways, God? Would you work in our hearts? Would you... Open our eyes to see this truth. Would you convince us that this is reality, that this is how things are meant to be? We need you. In Jesus' name we pray.